Good evening. It's my privilege to be here and get to preach tonight while Chris is still on his scouting trip with, uh, who's with Nathaniel and Patrick, right, in Mexico, figuring out where we're going to be for our trip. And we all, yep, hear that. And we all go down to Mexico. There we go. Just hold this. How about that? So we all wait quite a lot. You ever thought about how many different kinds of waiting there are, though? Sometimes in this really highly scheduled society, we wait for things that we know will take place at determined times, like surgery date, that interview, your book's release date, Christmas morning. And for a lot of things, we know pretty well what it is that we expect when we're waiting. So we know what the routine is when we go to get our driver's license renewed, when you wait for dinner to be served. But other times, you're waiting for something where the outcome unknown, thank you stage manager Elizabeth, might change your whole life. The election or that test result. The words, and the winner is. And then we wait a bit on pins and needles. Sometimes we wait for things we're not sure will ever arrive. That acceptance letter, the double pink line, your big break. And then there are the times we say we're waiting, and we really mean hesitating, right? Say, well, I am waiting until I speak the language better. Um, I'm waiting until I find the right person, and I'm waiting until I get my act together. And sometimes with great anticipation, we wait for things. We think we know what we're getting into, that new job or that first day of school. And we really have no idea what we're getting into, right? I think that's probably true of most people anticipating a wedding. The undisputed winner in that category has got to be waiting for the arrival of a new baby. Parents, can I get an amen? <laughs> After Jesus had returned to heaven, the disciples, so that small company of believers in Jesus, they'd seen him raised from the dead and had begun to call him Messiah and Lord, were waiting. They've made it their habit to pray together regularly. They've so far conducted one important piece of church business by selecting a replacement for Judas, so that the apostles once again complete that number 12, just like the tribes of Israel. What are they waiting for? Do they know when or where or how it would come? Tell you what, let's wonder about that while we read from Acts. We're in chapter 2 now, on page 1091 in your pew Bible, and today we're in verses 1 through 13. So if you'll stand with me for a moment. <clears throat> when the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound, like the blowing of a violent wind, came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each one of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now, there were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, 
aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that each of us hears them in our native language? Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, they have had too much wine. The word of the Lord. Be seated. Hmm. Wow. When was the last time someone accused you of being intoxicated after going to church? Lord, Holy Spirit, be present among us tonight as we hear your word. Fill us, for we adore you. Lift up the name of Jesus among us. And fill my words that they may reach each heart here with the message of the wonderful things you have done. In Jesus' name, amen. For those of you who like to know the roadmap, I'm going to give you a couple of keywords as signposts to mark the way for this evening. They are waiting. We'll ask what this waiting looked like. We'll do a little bit of the who, the what, and the where, where and when, because as there are some different opinions, I want to clear the space for us to imagine that a little bit. So waiting, what? I want us to understand what they were waiting for, that whether they not fully understood it or not, there was a filling that was fulfilling God's promise. And then um, you, you're not off the hook. So that one's pretty self-explanatory. We want to know where we are in this story. Waiting is intrinsic almost to this festival of Pentecost. Because the feast, which is an old Jewish feast, Shavuot, the Feast of Weeks, its date was fixed by counting seven weeks after Passover. So a little math will tell you. If you start with Passover, you go seven times seven. Pentecost itself is the 50th day. And that's exactly what that Greek word 50th, uh, Pentecost means, just 50th. So kids, if you've got your question sheets, there's your first key. Like Passover, Pentecost was one of three great pilgrim festivals where all of Israel was commanded to go appear before the Lord, bringing their offerings. And specifically for this festival, it was the harvest they were celebrating. So the offering would be the first of whatever you had grown, the first of the grain harvest. That's something in itself that you have to wait for with some expectation. Right? You plant, but you have to wait for it to come. Now that might have been a simple enough thing when Israel was a bunch of you know, tent-dwelling tribes clustered around with a tabernacle. But by the first century, they're scattered all over the Mediterranean world. Centuries of exile and political persecution have made it so there is no national Israel. <clears throat> In fact, their scattering is a painful reminder of that. For Jews who lived somewhere else in the diaspora, somewhere at the far ends maybe of the Roman Empire or even beyond, making that offering before the Lord at the temple in Jerusalem was a bucket list item, like a once-in-a-lifetime event to go up to Jerusalem. So if you'd been there, among all the pilgrims crowding in the city, 
scattered among the Aramaic and the Greek, you probably would have heard languages from every province you could think of. For Luke, his list represents the known world, as far as he's concerned. And then because the travel was such a great undertaking, a lot of those visitors would come for Passover and just stay for Pentecost before making their way home. So we can work out the when. It's not too long to figure. Taking into account, Jesus dies at the Passover, three days and nights in the tomb. And then, as Acts tells us, he spends 40 days after the resurrection teaching and being with his disciples. It seems it had been just about a week since he left them to return to heaven. And for us, it was just a few weeks ago when we heard that the last thing Jesus told them to do was wait for the promise of the Father. And back in the end of his gospel, which is basically the first volume, Luke gave us a little more detail where Jesus said, I'm sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Okay, so if I'm Peter, what I'm getting is, stay put, don't go home to Galilee. Even though their homes might be far away, like some of those pilgrims, Jesus' disciples are also hanging out in the city. But unlike a lot of those pilgrims, this waiting is the kind that has no definite endpoint. How long is this going to take? Don't know. In fact, it's not entirely clear what it will look like when it comes. They do seem to know that whatever they're waiting for, they should do it together. So Acts 1 tells us that the 12 got themselves a room. They're in somebody's upper room. It could be the same as the one where they had that last supper with Jesus. It could just be any guest room belonging to one of the Jerusalem disciples. And they're frequently meeting together in prayer. Not just them, but also Jesus' mother Mary and his brothers are there. Altogether, a group that make up about 120 people. We might even know some of their names, like Justice and Matthias, Cleopas, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, Salome. I'm guessing all of them were in the group. You know, if you added in their families, a few more, that probably makes up the whole crowd. It's a group not too different from the number of us who are here. It's certain that they all knew one another. It was a group you could know everybody's name. And we have every reason to think that the they in our story today refers to that community as a whole. Not least because when the Spirit comes, there are more than 12 languages being spoken, right? So if Luke had wanted us to think it was just the 12 apostles, could have given us a nice, tidy list of 12 languages. But if there's more than that, it's pretty clear that this was everybody in the community. What were they doing on that Pentecost? It makes sense that on a festival day, when there was no work allowed, they were gathering together again. The text gives us this hint that they were sitting. And they kind of would be backwards from us. We um, stood to... Let's see if I get this right. We stood to read the gospel and we sat down to pray, but in the ancient world, you were more likely to stand up for prayer, like this is the prayer posture, or kneel, but not so much sit. And you don't sit to eat, because for that you, you recline, kind of like you know, on your couch. So sitting might imply that they're just listening to teaching or the reading of scripture the way they would in the synagogue. The traditional setting pictures them in that upper room, that's a possibility. 
But you have to think that a private home that could hold 120 people had to be a rarity in Jerusalem at that time. Can anyone think of a building in Jerusalem that definitely could hold a public gathering of that size, though? Oh, my son wants me to call on him. Yeah. Sure, the temple could. We know that for sure. The courts of the temple could hold thousands of people. I, I think I gave you some numbers last time I got to talk last summer, right? But mosh pit density, thousands of people. <clears throat> and we know that there were like various gathering places within that. So there's one area called the Colonnade of Solomon. And we know from later in Acts that the believers are making a habit of meeting there together. Jesus taught there at one point. So on this great feast day, when all the Jews who gathered to Jerusalem are going to the temple for the celebration of Pentecost, why wouldn't they have been there as well? I suppose we might have expected Luke to mention it a little bit more explicitly, but let's say house is a perfectly good designation for the temple as well, the house of the Lord. And if they're in the temple, it solves a bit of a problem with the text, where We've always had to imply, right, that they start speaking in these other languages, and then this crowd mysteriously appears who hear them. So they must have rushed downstairs from the upper room into the streets where thousands of people were able to hear them. A little bit of a stretch there. We can imagine it. But it makes perfect sense if they're in the temple courts, because that's where all the pilgrims are, too. And when they start raising a noise, everybody says, what? What's going on over there? Did you hear that? Hey. And pretty soon this crowd forms. So while you're perfectly free to think about it otherwise if you want to, and scores of Sunday school coloring sheets clearly have done so, that's how Pentecost morning looks in my head. This congregation, not a whole lot different from this one, is sitting together in a court of the temple on the morning of an important holiday. They might be reading from the scripture, they might be listening to stories about Jesus. There's an atmosphere, an expectation waiting, longing, maybe a little bit of sadness. It's pretty clear that now Jesus isn't just popping in and out. He's really left. But also intense expectation, because after all, the angel said he would return. So maybe this is going to happen any day now. Like those who await weddings and new babies, they may know an event is coming that will transform their lives, but it will do so in ways they can't yet begin to fathom. When Jesus said, wait for the promise of my Father, did they understand that that meant the spirit of Yahweh? I think he tried to help them out, give them some idea. In John's Gospel, we see him trying really hard to help them understand. I have to go so the other comforter can come. The spirit of truth, he will teach you. And if they knew their scriptures, which I'm going to suppose they did, they probably would have associated the age of the Spirit with two things, renewal of the covenant and the flourishing of the land. See, in the prophets we find this holistic vision that a time would come when God would put his Spirit not just as a temporary gift, but would put his Spirit in his people so they would be able to fulfill the law. And if they can fulfill the law, then necessarily the land won't be afflicted but will flourish. So it all packages together. But it's not a state that humans are expected to be able to bring about on their own initiative. Because it requires a change of heart so complete that Ezekiel calls it taking your heart of stone out 
giving you a heart of flesh instead. Maybe the most vivid picture is in the prophet Ezekiel, and he has that eerie vision of a valley full of dry, dusty bones. And he's told, prophesy to the bones. Okay. Hey, bones, get up. And they put flesh on, but they're still lifeless. So the Lord says to him, prophesy to the breath. Right? He says, oh, breath, come from the four winds and make these bones live. And it's not until the breath comes that the bones live. See, breath and spirit in Hebrew and in Greek are essentially the same word. That ruach, that breath of God, that Psalm 33 told us, by which the stars were made. The breath that hovers over the dawn of creation is what will bring new life to God's people. So they have this vision, but it's a vision that was sadly unfulfilled in all the history of Israel. Not only did Israel not prosper in the land, but as we said, they no longer exist as a political entity. That dispersion through all the countries is that, that ever painful reminder that they were unable to keep the covenant. And so not just these disciples, but all of Israel was waiting for God to do something. Restore our fortunes. Bring in the kingdom. And then the day of Pentecost came, the NIV blandly says. But literally, the day of Pentecost was fulfilled or was completed. It could just mean, I suppose, that all the weeks were over and it's the actual day now. Uh, but I want to give Luke more credit than that. Because if there's one word that stands out in this passage, it is the word fill. Fill and fulfill. And when the Spirit came, there was no doubt that something dramatic was happening. And it was at God's initiative. We've got suddenly out of heaven. Kabam! Right? You can hear the author even struggling to describe what this was like. Each time he uses words like, um, it was a sound like a mighty wind if you can imagine that. And we saw something that was tongues as if they were fire. It's, it's, trying, it's clearly something supernatural. It's not just a little breeze ruffled the curtains. It's probably also, though, not, as one of my children, who will remain otherwise anonymous, said when I asked them, hey, what do you think of when you say Pentecost? Um, you mean that time when a bunch of people were in a room and their hair caught on fire? Bless the children and their gift of taking things so literally. But you know, it isn't surprising that Luke would reach for images like fire and wind to describe this, because both would be familiar signs of the presence of God. Luke wants us to bring those pictures to mind, because he's one of his primary interests is in showing us how the God of Israel has been faithful to the promises he made to Israel, so we know he's also to be trusted us. So the one that comes to my mind especially is when Solomon dedicates the temple. He prays, and then it says, fire came down from heaven, burnt up the offering, and the glory filled the house. There it is again, filled the house. But I bet that you could think of some too. Anything? Let's play a rousing round of where have I seen that before? Where have I seen fire or wind? associated with God showing up. All right? Moses and, and the burning bush, okay? Very good. Moses sees a burning bush. What else? 
Oh, bunches. Pillar of fire, okay. Oh, the same one? Okay, we got the pillar. Very good. What else? What? We got Elijah, okay. Except that's kind of a weird one because God wasn't in the wind and the fire, but that's okay. Oh, fire comes down and consumes the sacrifice. Okay, what else? A couple more. Anybody? About Job, he speaks out of the whirlwind, right? You'll find it all over once you start looking for it. Oh, I know when we have to say Mount Sinai. The mountain was covered with cloud and fire, right? So you couldn't hear this story with those in your mind and not hear that. But there's a difference because in those Old Testament encounters, there is consistently the sense of distance, of that absolute unapproachable holiness of God. Like Moses, take off your sandals. This is holy ground. Or, or, or perhaps even more frightening, do not let the people touch the mountain, lest they die, right? There's this unapproachability to those appearances of God. There's something different here. Because this fire distributes itself and settles in words very reminiscent of how the glory settles on each one of them in the room. Something has changed in the story. Now, I want us to note a little bit while we're talking about how it looked and how it felt. Because we usually think of the spiritual, you know, if you say, I had a really spiritual moment, it probably means something very private and interior happening inside you, maybe barely distinguishable from, like, a feeling. And you can sort of produce these spiritual moments pretty effectively if you know what to do with the music and the lights and the worship band, right? And of course, there are many, many testimonies to this encounter with God's Spirit giving people an inward confirmation of faith, a proof of the love of God, a sense of the joy of the Lord. And I don't want to discount that at all. But looking at this account, I would have to conclude that all the emphasis falls on the observable, the public, if somewhat mysterious, signs of the Spirit's presence. Like, not a word about how it made them feel. All the words about what it made them do. Just like the wind, the Spirit is known by his effects. And the very first result of this infilling is that they, just like Mary in the beginning of Luke's Gospel, now here at the beginning of Acts, they begin to declare the mighty works of God. It's a rather formal verb, like to proclaim, even to prophesy. And that wouldn't be unfamiliar because God's spirit comes upon people in the Old Testament and they start to do something called prophesying, which is apparently a fairly bizarre behavior. But that's not this. There's a further miracle here. It's an act of communication. Their words are understood by all those visitors from all over the known world as being in the language to which each of us was born. Sometimes people identify this event with the kind of speaking in tongues that we hear about in Paul's letters. There seems to be a fully legitimate gift of the Spirit that's praying or speaking in worship, but in a language that's not intelligible unless there's someone present, with also the gift of interpretation so the congregation can understand. 
But Luke could not be more clear that on this occasion, on the day of Pentecost, the disciples were praising God in a variety of perfectly identifiable, intelligible languages. They were understood by those members of the crowd who came from all those different countries. How are these Galileans speaking our language? In Psalm 33 today we read, The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. And alongside that we read, Let all the peoples fear the Lord. The miracle at Pentecost tells us so much about God's plan and God's heart. Those visitors, they could have just been the visitors for the festival, or they could have been Jews from the diaspora who had moved to Jerusalem. Either way, they probably understood either Greek or Aramaic. There were common languages for business. They didn't need a miracle of language strictly for them to hear the gospel. But almost everyone, unless you had the good fortune to grow up in a really truly bilingual household, which is cool, but almost every one of us has one heart language. It's that first language in which you learned to speak, and so it structured your whole world. Your heart language is the language in which your mother sang you lullabies. And as Bible translators will tell you, there is a world of difference between hearing the gospel in a foreign language, one you acquired later in life through hard work, and hearing it in the language you were born to, the one that has shaped your whole worldview. So could they have understood if Peter just stood up, started preaching? Yeah, sure. I mean, for that matter, God could have just zapped the message straight into their minds, right? Totally, he could do that. God just loves to use humans. God uses human languages. God even was willing to become a human. So see, God's story isn't limited to one particular set of words or even one culture or even one thought structure. Lucky us, we do not need to recite scripture in the original Hebrew or Greek for it to count. <laughs> That'd be a lot of Bible school. The gospel is firmly rooted in history. It's rooted in specific things God did, but it's not limited to that place and time and story, specifically because the Spirit is still working. So every time the Spirit breaks into a new culture, he stirs hearts to trust in Jesus. And then he empowers them to do the hard work of starting to translate the message into their culture and transform their culture with the message. The gospel will belong to every people as surely as those promises of the Hebrew prophets belonged to the Jews. So at Pentecost, we have the long-awaited promise fulfilled. The Spirit arrives. The very first sign of that Spirit is God's people being empowered to communicate God's wonderful acts to the entire known world in the way that most intimately touches their hearts. This had to be God's plan from the beginning. Blessed is the nation whose God is Yahweh. The psalmist was probably thinking of Israel, but every nation can be blessed. It might help to consider, this really helped me when I first heard it um, from one of my professors, consider the shape of the biblical story like a sort of an hourglass. 
it starts huge and cosmic in scope, right? It's the creation of the entire world. And then we start to narrow in. We get interested in Abraham and his descendants. And we watch them go down to Egypt and come back, and get settled in the land. And we're interested in the tribe of Judah and David, the king from that tribe. And his descendants try to help Israel obey the Lord, and they fail, and they go into exile. And in this time where they're longing and hoping for God to do something, we narrow down now to one young girl, Mary. So from all of humanity to a nation to a tribe, we come down to one person. Jesus is the focal point of the whole shape. And he teaches this small band of disciples, selects some unlikely fishermen to carry his message, dies the cruelest death the Romans could invent, rises again from the grave, and then leaves. So today, we're at the point where the story explodes open again. The Spirit arrives in this cozy community of believers that would fit in one room where you could know everyone's name is just burst open. By the end of the day, there would be 3,000 more of them. So think about this. It could probably never truly be said again that all of the believers in Jesus were, in, were gathered together in one place after that day. They would become a network. They would meet in homes. They'd be connected. Of course, they had common leaders. They would send letters and messengers. They'd testify to a shared experience in the spirit, but never again could they literally all get into a room and just conduct some church business. From now on, they're going to be a body on a mission, expanding and fulfilling God's plan to bring people from every nation back into fellowship with him. What were they waiting for? For that new chapter in the story to open up. An encounter with the Spirit so intimate that again, the New Testament tries out different kinds of language. It's like being plunged into the Spirit, the baptism. No, it's like receiving a gift. Or it's, it, it's like being filled with something. It's like being sealed. All of these word pictures. They were waiting for the arrival of a person, for that's what the Spirit is, not a mysterious force or an energy. Their experience of the Spirit would take a variety of forms, but it would no longer be an exceptional or occasional event. It would be a normative part of Christian living. So Gordon Fee, that wonderful scholar, says, when you read Paul's letters and every time your Bible says something about spiritual, you need to read capital S, spiritual, because that's what he's saying. Every time he talks about the Christian life, he talks about life in the spirit. We're up to you. What are you waiting for? If you go away from here thinking that the moral of the story is, okay, I guess, I should tell everybody about Jesus too, and I will have failed abjectly, because there are no shoulds in the gospel. What's that? Okay, should or shouldn't is what we say when we feel an obligation to do something that we really have no firm intention of actually doing, perhaps don't even really believe we can do. 
Uh, when I was like a teenager, I had cut out this Sally Forth comic that I thought was great, and I pinned it up for the longest time. I couldn't find it for you, but Sally and Ted are finishing a nice dinner, and the waiter comes around and says, would you like dessert? And she says, I shouldn't. And then in the next frame, she's clearly relishing her cake, and it says, shouldn't is so much more interesting a word than can't or won't. <laughs> there are no shoulds in the gospel. In the gospel, there are true statements like, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he will also give life to your mortal bodies. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the spirit. And you each, if you have trusted in Jesus, you have been given a gift by the Spirit to be a minister. These are the true statements that the gospel makes. And then following from those, there are directions, or what we grammar nerds call imperatives. Be filled with the Spirit. Walk in the Spirit. But no shoulds. So what is being filled with the Spirit like? Is it like filling up a gas tank, topper up? You have to keep stopping in at the filling station to get a little more so you can go a few more miles. Is it like somebody pouring water into a glass that goes and goes till it's full and then it just kind of like keeps overflowing? Which always makes me feel like kind of awkward. The spirit doesn't know when to stop. Or is it more like being filled with air? Is it more like the breath I just took that allowed me to speak this sentence? like an image of dust in the form of a human, lifeless in itself, but is animated only by the breath of God. Like a temple that serves its real purpose when it's filled with glory. Maybe. It might feel dramatic. There might be a definite moment in which you know that you opened your life up to God and the Spirit came in might feel more like the way that you depend on breath for every moment you're alive, all unnoticed, but sometimes you pause and you notice and you breathe more deeply and you give thanks. Actually, to know what being filled with the Spirit is like, maybe we should ask each other, what's it like for you? We'd definitely be up to like level four or five on the intimacy relationship scale if we could do that, right? But I can't tell you what it looks like because that's what the Bible tells us. Because when we are filled with the Spirit, there are signs, signs the Bible calls fruit. We grow joy. We grow more patience. We grow love. We overflow with praise. We like to praise God for how great he is. We speak about God more boldly. Because when you are filled with the Spirit, you become a messenger of God, communicating his heart's desire for all people to be brought back into fellowship with him. That's right. You, all of you, are God's way of speaking to somebody. You are uniquely positioned to translate the gospel into their heart language. And I don't just mean the words of a dictionary, but the way they think, their way of being, their assumptions, the way they see the world. For somebody, 
You are the vehicle that translates that message. You're on that exponentially expanding arc of the story of what God is doing. What are you waiting for? Thank you, Lord. Thank you for your spirit. Thank you for breathing new life into our tired and mortal bodies. We ask that you would send us out, not feeling the heavy weight of should, but the joy of what you have done for us. In Jesus' name.